Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. This is the third summary statement of Luke for the early church, and it is a beautiful one. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray together. Lord, This is your church where you are present, high, and lifted up, and it is a place of healing, physical, emotional, spiritual healing. I pray that this becomes an attractive place to this city and to this region, that people will come and find the wholeness that is only available in you. Make us that kind of church, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, it's been said that there are two ways to keep cattle on a ranch. You've got this huge ranch, you've got a bunch of cattle, you don't want them to wander. And one of those ways is to build a fence around the perimeter, and that keeps the cattle from leaving. And the other way is to dig a deep well in the center, so it compels them to stay to find water. And one need not wonder which the cattle themselves would choose But in this summary statement of what the church looks like in the first century, she has become this deep well. She has become, naming the name of Christ in a dark place, a drink of cold water in a dry and a thirsty land. It's funny, Jesus said in chapter 1 in Acts, in the Great Commission, I want you to go out and make disciples. I want you to go to the ends of the earth. I want you to find them. I want you to compel them to come to faith. But they don't have to do that yet because before they can get out their front door to get anywhere outside of Jerusalem, the people are coming to them. They are coming from towns and villages outside Jerusalem to find the church, to find the message of good news. It's incredible what's happening here today. And it's largely happening because of the miracles that are being performed. Now, because miracles feature so much in our paragraph, um, I want to just say a few words about miracles from the Bible. I mean, they're everywhere here. We see in verse 12, it says that now many signs and wonders were regularly done. Then it says in verse 15, get this, that people would bring their sick out to the main thoroughfares of Jerusalem so that Peter, the chief apostle, might walk by and his shadow could fall upon them that they might be healed. And then in verse 16, it reminds us that people came from around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That's incredible. That's beautiful. I mean, what if God gave us that kind of power today by our hands? People were physically healed of all ailments. That would be incredible. Who wouldn't want that in the church today? 
But let me just say a few words about miracles so that we can get our bearings on how and where and why and when God uses them to propel the gospel forward. The first thing I want to say is that miracles actually come in bursts in the Bible. Sometimes when you first hear the storybook Bible, Jesus storybook Bible, or you're just vaguely familiar with the Bible, it sounds like miracles are happening on every single page, like they're all over the place. But if you slow down and read, miracles really actually come in clumps. They come in in big moments of salvation history. So like surrounding Moses, there's a bunch of miracles. And then Elijah and Elisha, there are a bunch of miracles. Then Jesus, then the apostles. These are places where a lot of miracles happen. And in the intervening time, there are sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years where there's no mention of any miracle. Isn't that interesting to think about the Bible in that way? Number two, the miracles that happen here are said to come specifically, verse 12, by the hands of the apostles. And even more specifically than all the apostles, verse 15, especially by the hands and maybe even the shadow of Peter. So even in this first century church, it's not like everybody is doing miracles. You have thousands of believers, over 5,000 believers, and it's not even those who have the most faith, those who are the most spiritual, those who spend the most amount of time reading their Bibles. It is pretty much only in the hands of this, these dozen men, these apostles, that miracles are being performed. Number three, and this is similar to one and two, miracles can and do give credibility to God's message and his messengers. We saw that with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and Peter, but it is a rare sign of credibility. I want you to think about all God's messengers, godly believers in the Bible who came to speak his word and did no miracles or almost no miracles. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you think about the forefathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they didn't do any miracles. You think about the three men in the Bible, the Old Testament, that God calls the most righteous men in the Old Testament, Noah, Job, and Daniel. They did almost no miracles between them. You think about the person who Jesus called the greatest living human being ever. Do you know who Jesus called that? John the Baptist, and he didn't do a single miracle. Isn't that interesting? So I say points one through three to put miracles really in their proper place. They are beautiful, incredible tools in God's tool belt to proclaim his kingdom, but let's be careful how we think about them and how often they're used and who they're used by. This is not God's only means to pronounce the gospel, the good news of his salvation. But I want to say number four, that miracles have not ceased today. Miracles have have not ceased today. Miracles still happen. Now, you're in a Presbyterian church, and I know many of you have not come from a Presbyterian background, but Presbyterians have a a sad but well-deserved reputation for being suspicious about the Holy Spirit, suspicious about spiritual activity, 
about praying in tongues and about power coming from our hands to heal and to bind up. Anything that sounds supernatural or fun, we don't want any part of that, right? I mean, we're just suspicious with that third member of the Trinity. But shame on us. That is not true. God works today, he heals today, he performs miracles today. I have seen them, many of you have seen them. He does work in that way today. The only thing that has ceased is new revelation. The moment someone says that they have a prophecy that adds to the Bible or they speak in tongues in a way that adds to the Bible, if we were in the Old Testament and you did that here, we would take you outside and stone you. In the New Testament, I'll take you next door and we'll get a cup of coffee and I'll say, knock it off or we'll have to stone you, okay? So that's how we do it today. That's the only thing that has ceased. Miracles are still available today. But number five, the last thing I'll say about miracles is miracles always are meant to point to a deeper spiritual reality. They are not magic tricks to wow us. You think about all the miracles that Jesus performed and what the disciples are doing right now. Isn't it interesting that nobody is doing card tricks and no one is pulling a rabbit out of a hat and no one is making things appear and disappear for the sake of gathering a crowd? The miracles themselves are part of the message because the miracles heal, they bind up, they release captives from demon possession they start to do all the things that will be supremely true in heaven when the kingdom of God has come in its fullness and a miracle is just a taste of what heaven is like. Miracles are always meant to show forth God's glory and to drive us to a deeper spiritual reality to know the living God. When a mute person is healed and their tongue is loosened and they can speak, it's not just for speaking's sake. It's so that they can walk away praising God. When we saw the lame man healed, he had never walked in his entire life. It's not that he gets up and gets to walk for walking's sake. He goes into the temple dancing and praising God. Miracles are always meant to point to, drive us to, show us something about God and his kingdom to compel us to faith. That's what a miracle is for. And that idea of a miracle helps bridge the gap between what's happening in this paragraph, which is so supernatural and so stupendous, and what we might be about today as the 21st century church, whether or not God gives us this power. So God kind of has two options with our church family today. One, he could actually give us this power. The Spirit could fall upon us in a fresh way. I don't deny that this could happen. We might lay hands on a regular basis and heal and exercise, and that would be fantastic. People would come running from outside of Columbia here. We would be on the evening news. It would be incredible. He can do that. I believe that. Or number two, regardless of if he gives us that power of miracles or not, he will continue to do spiritual miracles through our faithfully preaching the gospel, that those who are in bondage will be loosed, that those who are blind will see, that those who are mute towards God might speak to him in the first place, 
and though we'll never make the evening news, there will be deep wholeness and healing in this place. God can do physical healing that leads to spiritual healing, or he can strictly do spiritual healing in our midst. That's up to him and what he will do. But either way, the ultimate goal of this church, our church, is to point to the deeper reality of Jesus himself and the forgiveness and the healing that's in him, right? Now, Jesus made a direct line between physical healing and spiritual healing. It was actually in our call to worship this morning from Mark chapter 2. He makes this analogy. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, friends, we are not a church for the well. We are a church for the sick. We are not a church, as Jesus says, for the righteous, that is the self-righteous. We are a church for the sinner. Why are we that? Why do we become that kind of church? Because Mark 2 says that's where Jesus is. Jesus is among the sinner and the sick. And if Jesus is our head and we are merely his body, then where Jesus is, we will be also. That's why we call ourselves a gospel community. That's why we call ourselves 500 denarii debtors, big, big sinners. This passage is simply calling us a church for the sick. How would I be able to tell the difference between a church for the righteous well and a church for the sick sinner? Like if I came into a fellowship, how would I know the difference between a place that is is geared for the self-righteous and a place that is geared for those who are honest about their sin? What would be some of the, the ways I could tell the difference between the two of those? Well, a church for the righteous, a church whose members are trying to get clean before they come into our church family who are trying to present themselves as righteous in and of themselves apart from Jesus, are trying to give off an air of religiosity to impress, you will notice several things about that kind of fellowship. You will not find humility in a self-righteous church because faking righteousness when I know I'm a sinner because pointing to other people's sin to take attention off of my own sin, because refusing to ask for help, that takes an enormous amount of pride and you will not find humility in this place. You're not going to find any urgency in a self-righteous church. You're not going to find people who are greedy and hungry to be in this place with God's people, with God's sacraments, with God's word, with prayer, because they are finding a righteousness of their own apart from God. You won't find accountability in a self-righteous church because faking righteousness means I can't let anybody close enough to know that I'm actually a sinner, that I have to give off an air to show that I am something that I am not, and so I keep accountability far from me. You will not find honest accountability in this place. A church for the self-righteous The self-cleaned, the self-healed is a deadly place because it names the name of Jesus, but Jesus is not here. 
We didn't need him, and so he went to find sinners. Friend, I plead with you. Coming into this place and putting on an air of self-righteousness is about as foolish as a blind man walking into this first century church and pretending like he could see. (laughs) An apostle says, hey brother, I see that you're blind and I'm here to heal you. And the blind man says, who, me? No, I'm not blind. I've seen some blind people. I mean, they look terrible. I saw them stumbling on their way here. Me, I'm not blind. I'm totally fine. That makes makes absolutely no sense at all. This is a church for the sick. This is a church for the sinner. In a church for the sinner, you do not have to wonder if the person sitting next to you, the person at your dinner table, the person in your life group, the person looking back at you in the mirror is a sinner. You can safely presume that every single person in this room, myself chief among us, is under spiritual attack, is fighting the flesh, is hiding sin from other people, is failing in our pursuit of righteousness, is self-deceived just how deeply our sin goes. We can safely presume that every single person in this room is as much in need of Jesus' precious, infinite, saving, healing, forgiving grace as ever. This is a church for sinners. And I want you to see just the beautiful metaphor of this, a living metaphor of this in Acts chapter 5. Look at what's happening here. I mean, word got out in this community that there was a safe and a healing place for the sick to go. And I don't know how word got out so fast, but I assume that someone was healed and that someone who told someone and that someone told someone else. And all of a sudden, you've got sick people from the surrounding region stampeding towards the church with all of their ailments, blindness, muteness, lameness. They are possessed by demons. They are unclean. They have not been welcomed in the temple. And all of a sudden, they come storming to this place, to the church, not for the church's sake, but because the one who stands over the church, Jesus, the physician of the sick, is there, and they long for his healing. And do you think for a moment, for a single moment, that Jesus, over his church in Jerusalem, looked out over this line of people coming to him, broken bodies and broken souls, and said, oh great, more sick. Where are the well? Where are the righteous? Where are the healthy backs that can do heavy lifting and accomplish my great commission? Where are the well? No, friend. Jesus told us that when he sees this stream of broken people coming to him, He smiles, his arms are wide open, and he says, this is why I have come. Come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, come from wherever you are. Bring your ailment with you. Bring your sin with you. Bring your addiction with you. Bring your brokenness with you. Come and find healing in this place. That's the gospel. That's the church for the sinner. Now that's beautiful news, but our passage has this little twinge of sad news. Because for some people in the city of Jerusalem, the news that Jesus was here for the sick sinner was just too good to believe. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico, that is the believers. They're in part of the temple. There's no church building at the time. They can't fit in anybody's house. So they're in a section of the temple. And verse 13 says, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now this is so interesting to me, but there's nobody in our paragraph, nobody in Solomon's portico or standing from a distance, there is nobody in our passage who hates Jesus. There's nobody in our passage who doesn't believe Jesus didn't exist. There's nobody in our passage who's aggressive against his church. Nobody in our passage who are blocking other people from coming to Jesus. There's nobody like that in our paragraph. They all come in the next paragraph. In our paragraph, everybody is very friendly. But there's this group of people who respect Jesus but don't join Jesus. And to me, those who respect Jesus and don't join him are more dangerous and potentially more self-deceived than those who outright hate Jesus and what he has done. Because those who hate Jesus know that they are far from Jesus. That is their plan, and they have set him at arm's length. But those who esteem and respect Jesus and have such a warm, fuzzy, favorable feeling towards him might not realize that they are just as far from him as those who hate him. There will be some, even in our midst, who esteem Jesus from afar straight into judgment day. Like they quote him and they ask him for stuff and they wear a cross And they even visit him on Christmas and Easter. My Catholic friends have a name for those kind of people that come on those two holidays. They call them Creasters, right? You know who the Creasters are. Maybe someone here this morning is a Creaster. This is your first time in the fellowship. They're called Creasters, but Luke calls them esteemers. Either way, their favorable feelings towards Jesus will not save them. It is only those who don't stand from afar in respect, but come running in sin, who cast themselves on the mercy of Christ himself as a sinner, desperate for his grace, that find his healing, his wholeness, his forgiveness. 
Did you see the language that happens in verse 14? And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Those who have faith in Christ aren't just added to the church's membership roles. They are added to the Lord himself. They are joined to Christ because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we come and come quickly to throw ourselves on your mercy, to acknowledge that we are sinners then and sinners now, desperate in need of your grace, and we will find healing and rest for our souls. Let that be true of us, and let that be a true invitation for our city. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.